This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Systems are finally coming to that same full-scale realization. We have to really transform the way we're delivering care, how we're leveraging our talent, our workforce, how we're integrating technology and our digital capabilities to make sure that we're actually practicing top of license, not just from a clinician standpoint, but really across the board. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Tori Ritchie. Today, I'm joined by Brianna Motley, the lead of the SG2 System of Care Practice, and Tony Guth, who, in addition to leading the surgery service line, helps support the same practice. And they're here to discuss capacity constraints facing organizations today and how this will impact the landscape moving forward. Brianna, Tony, thanks for joining. Thanks for having us, Tori. You're welcome. Brianna, I'd like to start with you. We've heard from members across the country that they're severely struggling with capacity challenges today. Could you provide just a quick overview of why this is the case? What's causing these challenges? Yeah, Tori, I'd be happy to. And I would probably break members into three different categories. The first is members who actually aren't struggling with capacity constraints. So I want to put on the table out there that we do know there are members who aren't affected by what many members across the country are feeling and experiencing. It's a great position to be in, but that is one of the buckets. For the other two, there's a difference between physical capacity constraints, which we have heard several of our members are facing today. So they actually physically don't have the space to be able to accommodate the demand that they have. Frequently, these tend to be our AMC members who are serving in a addition to community-based care, that higher level tertiary quaternary care, but they don't have anywhere to go. Everyone knows building a hospital facility takes several years. They can't bring additional physical capacity online very quickly. And then there's also members who are struggling with capacity constraints because of staffing challenges. The workforce shortages have been in the news, are certainly top of mind for many of our members. We know that there's a high degree of turnover. There are workforce shortages, specifically in the acute capacity setting. So that's a driver as well. When we think about what's causing it, certainly staffing is one of the things we point to very frequently in terms of a driver of capacity constraint. If you don't have staff to staff beds to staff to demand, then you're going to have to take those beds offline. Related to staffing is contract labor. So a lot of hospital facilities, health systems are having to use contract labor right now. I think we're at 15% above pre-pandemic level utilization of contract labor. That makes it more expensive to staff those beds, which is also creating pressure on hospital margins right now, which I know we've talked about a little bit earlier. The last factor that I'd point to that hasn't gotten as much attention, but is the challenges that exist as we try to move patients out of the hospital. So if they have to go to any type of post-acute care setting, including home health, but also skilled nursing and patient rehab, staffing challenges are acutely affecting that sector of the industry right now. And that causes an inability to be able to move patients out of hospital beds, which means they stay longer. It further places pressure on that capacity equation. Those are just a couple of the factors. Uh, Tony, what would you weigh in with there? I know I've missed something. Well, just to add to the staffing challenges, I was talking with a member not too long ago. They have some pretty ambitious plans to invest in an ambulatory hub, includes an ASC, an MOB, some immediate care, and their concerns with staffing are kind of limiting their path forward because they know that they're going to have to cannibalize their existing staff in the hospital setting. It's going to be really tough to find whole new staff to operate this facility. It's hindering more than just acute capacity. It's kind of hindering growth plans across the spectrum, across the system of care. So it's, it's pretty unfortunate. It's a pressure that's going to hang out with us for a little a while. 
What I think is really interesting about some of the staffing challenges that we're facing right now, they're really amplified by the fact that we are finally seeing the baby boomer population retire. And so there aren't going to be the warm bodies basically to fill the spots that are currently being left on the table. That really then calls to question and brings up a great opportunity for things like care redesign. How do you then change the way that you're providing care as a whole instead of just trying to find a match for that headcount or FTE that's been left on the table? That's exactly right, Tori. We aren't getting any younger as a country, and we're also not, from a replacement rate standpoint, producing the same level or same degree of workers into the workforce. There's a lot more demand for jobs. I know that in the past year, we've talked a lot at SGT about the gig economy and what's healthcare's solution to the gig economy, but there's so much competition for a limited amount of labor out there. We do have to do things differently. And one of the things that's encouraging is I feel like we've been talking about this at SGT for so long, and yet systems are finally coming to that same full-scale realization. We have to really transform the way we're delivering care, how we're leveraging our talent, our workforce, how we're integrating technology and our digital capabilities to make sure that we're actually practicing top of license, not just from a clinician standpoint, but really across the board. I want to dive into a bit that topic is really how do you strike that balance? How do you find the balance between these constraints and these shortages that folks might be facing with then the desire to grow, the desire to innovate and change. From your perspective, what are some of those upstream and downstream drivers of capacity constraints? Let's start there. Well, I'm talking about upstream capacity constraints or causes of capacity constraints. I think about patients being managed appropriately in the ambulatory and community-based settings. If they're not, then they're going to show up in your hospital. I mean, breaking down these ambulatory access barriers, building those channel management skills, it's easier said than done. That's why this is kind of a perennial issue. Very, very difficult to do. But generally, that's what I think of when I hear of upstream causes of our hospital capacity constraints anyway. And then downstream, also a similar song. It's very common for us to hear from our health system members that placement of patients in post-acute beds is very, very difficult. So the result is that the inpatient patient stays in the hospital for a longer period of time, especially a big concern if capacity is a serious problem. It's making it worse. Quick solutions are hard to come by, but they involve partnering with local regional post-acute care providers. They involve building up the digital capacities to handle these patients maybe in their homes. It's interesting. We were having a conversation with a member the other day. One of the things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, especially in setting our agenda for the year, is thinking about service distribution and revisiting a lot of those conversations, doing that hard work. And we know that it's really difficult work and there are reasons why it takes a while to get that into place and be successful. One of our members was asking, it's one thing to do that for service lines like stroke or or cancer or orthopedics, but another thing to do it with general medicine patients, your diabetes patient. How do you redistribute those services when at the end of the day, hospitals are intended to take care of those people? How do you turn them away when they present at the ED? Your points about working upstream are really important once that patient presents at your ED, you're not going to be able to change that behavior. But what can you do about better managing their chronic conditions in the ambulatory setting so that hopefully you avoid that downstream hospital admission? Or even from a triaging standpoint, thinking about leveraging our digital capabilities to route patients to the appropriate care setting. Do they need to be in the ED or can they be appropriately cared for across other physical sites of care or even in the home with some of our care at home programs? Working upstream is 
one of the elements that ties to overall care redesign that we really are going to need to focus on in order to be able to solve this capacity conundrum. And I feel like health systems are losing more and more control or influence over those upstream access channels. CVS, the the deal, I don't know if it was finalized or was announced this week, by CVS and Oak Street, right? $10.5 billion with a B. This is just a continuing trend of what we've been observing for a few years now. Are you feeling that too, Brianna? I feel like what do health systems do in the space where they have, I'm not looking for an answer, not to put you on the spot, but I just think out loud here, but I feel like health systems are losing some influence over these upstream access channels that ultimately impact their hospital-based business. I don't know what the ultimate end goal is here, but it looks like it can be tough to manage. It's absolutely tough to manage and losing in a competitive sense. I don't know that all of that is necessarily 100% figured out yet, and perhaps there are still opportunities for partnership. The landscape is certainly not getting any less competitive. The other part of this equation is where do you place your resources? Where do you place your emphasis and your strategic focus? Because as we talked about last year, you're not going to be able to do it all. Certain aspects of our chronic care patient population with a really strong digital backbone to make sure that we have that information well integrated. So if they do end up presenting to the ED, we're not starting from ground zero. Maybe it fixes itself, these game changers and these new relationships take care of these patients in these settings before they show up in our hospital. That's a question that I have bouncing around in my head is, do you even care? Like, especially when you think about hospital margins being what they are right now for a large percentage of organizations across the country. If you have somebody that can come in and take away the individuals where you really weren't generating revenue based on managing their conditions, you're still going to capture those individuals for ED visits, for surgeries, for inpatient care. I think that's right. I mean, we internally over the last year have talked about that. What happens if community-based care, as we look at the system of care, is ceded to those who can do it at scale more efficiently through integration of technical capabilities and really manage those patients in a better way because they have the resources at their disposal to be able to do it and the expertise from being dedicated in that space to be good at it. Can we effectively compete as health systems, and to your point, part of effectively is from a margin standpoint. If you think about what the current business model is for CVS and Oak Street, it really is that the ambulatory preventative wellness care management side, but is there a possibility for them to extend into post-acute at some point? Absolutely. We know payers are looking at the space and making acquisitions in the space, especially with an aging population. That is certainly something we have to be thinking about and thinking about from a strategic standpoint, what's the benefit of that? Because I don't know that we have necessarily, all of us have the resources to be able to address that or invest a ton of capital into addressing some of the access challenges in that space. So we're going to have to come up with something. Certainly there are shortages from a staffing perspective, and certainly there are shortages just from a programmatic perspective. And so I'm curious, what are some of the opportunities then for organizations to invest today to help with that access challenge that the patients are facing? One of the things we've been talking about a lot lately is making sure that you are thoughtful and strategic about which patients really need to be in which post-acute settings. That's something that is a little bit more within our control as health systems. Being a little bit more discerning about where we're sending patients, being proactive in that decision-making process, knowing that there is not an unlimited 
source of capacity across settings? How can we take a look at the data on where we're sending patients and be more informed in terms of how we're making those decisions? So that's certainly one thing. There's also been a lot more questions that we've been receiving about or conversations that we've been having even about transitions of care programs as you're moving patients out of the hospital. What is the role that remote monitoring can play, more frequent touch points in those first couple of days post-discharge to make sure that we're, number one, able to send patients home with a little bit more support, hopefully avoid that readmission down the road. But in some cases, under the right conditions, be able to transition patients more quickly into that home-based setting. Certainly sets up conversation about care at home as well, which I know we've talked about a few times over the last couple of months. If you want to get more innovative and more proactive about what we can do in the home and how quickly we can move patients into the home, there are a plethora of continuing care in the home programs to explore underneath that umbrella as well. Fantastic. Shifting gears then, we've talked a bit about the post-acute landscape and some of the constraints that folks are facing. And I want to focus now on those high acuity procedures where really organizations are struggling with okay, we're constrained from a capacity perspective, but we're also seeing this rise in length of stay and increasing acuity of of the patients that are coming in. So how are organizations balancing these two very difficult challenges at the moment? Good question, Tori. These are the patients that most hospitals want. And this is what the capacity situation prevents is bringing in these patients who are high acuity surgical patients that demand high levels of care. These are the patients that physicians, administrators, everyone wants in the hospital. They belong in the hospital. They probably generate a margin. They sustain the hospital and health system's mission. The issue here is trying to make room for them. It's not necessarily a balancing act amongst that pocket of patients. It's balancing those patients with the rest of the medicine patients. The breakout between surgical DRGs and medical DRGs is 25 and 75, respectively. So there's growth in those surgical patients. The high acuity, really any acuity surgical patient, there's growth. There's not a whole lot of margin growth in the medicine patients. And what we've been talking about this entire time, we've got to find a home for these patients that is not in the hospital. But what I'm trying to get at is surgical patients don't typically come up in the capacity discussion the way that you think they would. They are what the hospital's for. Tony, that's a really great way to frame the discussion, especially your comment about what the hospital is for and also how did we get here? And it ties really nicely to coming back to the conversation of working upstream and trying to really be thoughtful about the role of the hospital. It feels like there's a balancing act and two odds of the spectrum because I think in some respects, some would argue the hospital is there to care for whoever needs care. But we know that our system as a whole has been very reactive just because of payment incentives. And the idea that the hospital is for those higher acuity surgical procedures that need specialized equipment to be able to deliver the appropriate care for patients. I wonder if that's something that we've lost sight of. The other thing, Tony, is it reminds me of the analysis that we've done, and I never really thought about it in the way that you described it, which is phenomenal. But just looking at the subtypes of DRGs that are in the hospital, and this is something that we featured in our year ahead webinar and certainly will keep coming back to this year, is the proportion of DRGs that are low or medium case mix index resource intensity that is required to take care of patients. And that's 80% of, on average, what's in our hospitals today. What do we do about that? For us, that's the starting point of care redesign, which is another thing. That's where we look to 
potentially shift volumes into the home or look at what can potentially redistribute to other systems, be cared for earlier upstream to prevent downstream admissions. There's a whole set of strategies that we can talk through with this, and it's not just about service distribution. Tony and Brianna, this is clearly where your headspace is. And this has been such a fascinating conversation because we are hearing from members regularly that these are the main issues that they're facing really around staffing shortages as well as those capacity challenges. And so I'm curious, what are you working on this year to help address some of these issues? You're exactly right. This is where our headspace is. We are excited because complex problems excite us. We're nerds. But uh, gosh, there's so much we're working on to be able to support our members with some of these challenges this year. I would highlight three things. The first is we have an integrated performance solution on this topic. It's optimal service mix, but really that's the foundation we think for service distribution, for care redesign, for thinking about the outpatient shift. The solution will both have a tool that looks at on a service line basis, what is the volume that you should be looking at shifting out of your inpatient facility, but then paired with an educational curriculum that focuses on answering or helping to prioritize some of these bigger questions. What should you be thinking about from a service distribution standpoint? Where does outpatient shift fall into the equation? What role do post-acute access and, and care at home factor into the equation? And then we haven't even talked about some of the operational and financial considerations that pair with this conversation. It is a tricky balance. That's one major body of work to highlight. We'll also be exploring the balance of this topic through our executive summit conference this year. And then finally, one of our pieces later this year will be on network optimization, which is really thinking about system of care optimization. What are the next steps within service distribution? How do you think about the role that keeping patients at community-based hospitals can play in making your system run more efficiently, more effectively. Huge body of research for us this year, and we are excited about it. Perfect. Well, Brianna, Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation, and this is certainly an area that's receiving so much attention right now. I'm really excited to see the resources that you two develop over the course of the coming year. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Visient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at visientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.